Hi everyone, it's Alex Patterson here from Canada 2020, and welcome to The Recovery Project, a new initiative designed to start the conversation about post-pandemic recovery, even if that recovery feels a long way off. If you listen to the first episode on this feed, an interview between a few of our launch partners, you know that the reason we're having this conversation now is because policymakers, public health officials, and frontline workers are focused as they should be on the urgent here and now. So that's why Canada 2020, the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy and Global Progress have partnered to launch the Recovery Project, a helpful hub of insight and expertise on what recovery, both in Canada and around the world, could or should look like. Today, as I'm recording this, we hosted our first live stream discussion online. Over 350 people tuned in live to hear from our panelists about the big picture forces at play in Canada and how that will have an impact on our recovery effort. And we're posting that audio here on our newly launched podcast feed because we know lots of you weren't able to tune in live. Now, it is a Zoom call, so the audio isn't polished perfect, but we had some great insights from our panelists. Kevin Page, the founding president and CEO of IFSD. The Honorable Anne McClellan, senior advisor at Bennett Jones and former deputy prime minister of Canada. And Tiff Macklem, Dean at the Rotman School of Business and former Deputy Governor of the Bank of Canada. Heather Schofield, our Ottawa Bureau Chief and Economics Columnist for the Toronto Star, was our moderator, and she kicks things off. But before I hand it off to her, a quick reminder that if you want to get involved in what we're building, visit www.recoveryproject.org and send us a message. Our coalition is designed to grow, so if you have any feedback and ideas, we are most certainly listening. All right, over to Heather. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us. There are many, many people caught up in the tragedy of fear and illness and loss of income right now, which is all consuming for those people. Um, and it's a privilege at this point, really, to be <laughs> spared the immediate panic and probably an opportunity that we should, if we are lucky enough to be able to avoid that tragedy, to spare some thought about the future and how the entire country could come out of this in the best possible way. So, you know, just as we delve into the thick of this virus and how it's affecting us, you know, there are some tiny glimmers of hope. I would say here or there in some data coming out of some places. And, you know, financial markets have rebounded a little bit, uh, shown some signs of life, and they are always, always anticipating far in advance of where we are actually today. So perhaps that's something. But I think before we get carried away in that, it's important to acknowledge that this will be a very tough slog and probably tougher than anything we've come through before. In terms of setting up our discussion, you know, if we think hard about what we're doing now, um, perhaps that position us better for the future. And I kind of think we're at a point where this could be just destruction, plain and simple, in terms of leaving us with a poor financial situation, a poor economic situation, and income inequalities, and exposed healthcare system. Or we could take it in a different direction and learn from some of the weaknesses that are being exposed now, and some of the ingenuity and some of the assertive actions that we see being taken by government, and perhaps take some bold steps. Just a a little bit about us in the panel. So as Alex mentioned, I'm the economics columnist and bureau chief of the Toronto Star. I've covered quite a few financial crises over, over time um, and kind of in tandem and in parallel to our other panelists here. I've never seen anything like this, as I don't think any of us have, but it's a privilege to be able to um, talk with people that do have so much uh, hands-on experience dealing with the ups and downs of the past. And I think they bring a broad range of experience that we can draw on. You know, we have four broad themes that we'll kind of get into here and mix it up with your questions. But I'd like to just start off with a question for Anne McClellan about the present situation and what does it tell us about the weaknesses in our system? What weaknesses have been exposed now that could be addressed as we move more broadly towards recovery? 
Thanks very much, Heather, and good morning, everyone. Just before I maybe say something specific about weaknesses, or perhaps I might prefer to describe them as challenges, this won't be good news to people, but we need to start thinking about the future, as Heather says, because the next global public health crisis, it's not a question of if, it's only a question of when. And I think our planners, whether they're in the healthcare system or whether they're in the economy and civil society more broadly, need to take on that reality. So we do need to learn from the situation in which we find ourselves, just as we learned from SARS, just as we learned from H1N1. And also to your point, Heather, we need to understand that this is an unusual circumstance in that the WHO has only declared a handful of global pandemics. The last one was H1N1, obviously in 2009, but SARS was not declared a global pandemic, a number of reasons, one of which was it was actually very geographically constrained. Unfortunately, Canada was one of the handful of countries that actually had a significant number of cases, but it was not declared declared a global pandemic. So all our policymakers are actually working in this situation where if this is a global situation where there's not going to be a country in the world, I am sure, that is not touched by uh, what we are dealing here with COVID-19. And that has so many implications for our healthcare system and obviously also our economy. A couple of weaknesses, I think, in our system, but in other systems. Public health is the poor cousin of most countries' public health care systems. And we knew this going into SARS. We certainly knew it coming out. And it's going to be really important to do, again, lessons learned in terms of recovery of our healthcare system and taking on board and internalizing in everything we do the importance of public health care and putting the resources, human and financial, into that system so that we can function together. We are a federation, and that has strengths and weaknesses, as we discovered with SARS. But we are what we are, and therefore the resources need to be put in to ensure that we have the integrated systems across the country producing the data in a timely fashion and being able to analyze it and then share it on a national basis and with the rest of the world. And I think we do need to seriously, coming out of this global pandemic, spend more time thinking about what we need that to look like. The other thing I'll say quickly, we are butting up against a major challenge in relation to procurement. We knew that from SARS. And yes, the government of Canada has stockpiles, but Patty Hyde, the Minister of Health, very honest, said that in fact those stockpiles are not going to meet the need. She now describes it as the wild west of procurement. We didn't have that with SARS. We didn't have that with H1N1. In fact, where countries were cooperating, where in fact procurement of needed supplies actually wasn't the number one concern. So we, coming out of this, I think, have to look at how we are more in charge of our own destiny, Heather. And we see this happening with the industrial complex, Canadian industry here, as the government has asked Canadian companies to step up. I don't think going forward, we can count on the rest of the world stepping up and being available for whatever reason to meet our procurement needs. And right now, 
the government of Canada and provincial governments, but especially the federal government, focused on where do we get the things we need to sustain our healthcare system and protect our first responders, especially our frontline healthcare responders. And I think that speaks to a change, and I don't know exactly what that will look like, but in terms of how government ensures that we at home have the industrial innovation and manufacturing capacity to make sure that we're not dependent upon even our friends, because right now we have a problem with the U.S. apparently. And I'll just conclude by saying, we in global health crises before have always been able to look to the United States of America for leadership through the CDC, which is the world's best public health organization, best financed largest number of researchers, and best stockpiles of equipment, and so on. And right now, we are running up against a situation that probably no one in this country had expected. But those are just some of my macro preliminary thoughts. Just to pick up on a couple of those themes, if, you know, we're having all these, these procurement problems, does that, um, and, and this actually um, goes to one of the questions that we just got from, from the audience, does this look like, um, you know, if we're running into all these procurement problems now and the United States is no longer uh, backing us up on the healthcare and public health front, does this spill over into a broader protectionism and into a, a world where um, it's every country for itself and this globalization that I would argue has brought us prosperity over the last last couple of, of, of decades it turns into something else. Heather, there are clearly some real dangers uh, that's going to happen. Um, there has been a, a shocking lack of international coordination in the response to this crisis, as, as Anne has just highlighted. And certainly you do worry going forward that uh, it, it could sort of feed a, a you know, look after yourself mentality. I hope that one of the lessons we learned from this is that uh, we are all in this together. This is affecting, this is engulfing the whole world and we cannot solve it one country at a time. And when you look at most of our big global problems, um, whether it's a pandemic or climate change, they don't respect international borders. And, and so I do hope that coming out of this, it actually strengthens uh, and reinforces the need for, for a multilateral approach. Um, I, I do agree that, you know, Historically, uh, U.S. has been kind of the glue and the leader that has kept this thing together. Uh, and having the U.S. step up is, is going to be an important part of that. Uh, Canada has a lot to offer, um, but we're clearly, we cannot do it alone. So, Kevin, um, in terms of that not being able to go it alone, the World Health Organization um, has been, I, I guess, somewhat central to how the world has been dealing with this. Um, and like, where do you see international organizations uh, and Canada's role in terms of leadership uh, in, those, in those organizations going forward? Is that something that we could do on the health front and on the economic front? I think coming out of a different crisis, the financial crisis in 2008, we um, saw an effort that was both domestic and international. Like definitely countries looking at their own, doing their own stress testing, central banks looking at uh, the roles that they play and the kind of support that they can offer, but also like the international community coming together, people like TIFF working on financial stability boards. So we saw, I think after that crisis, you know, a capacity for the world to come together. And I think as well, like with, this very different health crisis 
This was um, um, not man-made. This is more of a natural disaster that uh, I'm hoping as well that we could have, you know, this, you know, the country coming together. So yes, the World Health Organization in Canada playing a key role in that sort of development. So in terms of, um, and, and maybe I can t I turn to, to Tiff here to start this discussion a little bit. What action do you think, if, if we are to position ourselves more strongly, more centrally um, in, 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 this, in this, what will in inevitably be a bit of a fractured world going forward, are there specific actions that you think need to be taken right now? Um, uh, and, and where would the you know, government and business alike, are we, which, what's, what's your advice on how we could come out of this in a very good way? Let me start by focusing uh, very near term, Heather. Uh, the first response is the social response, and that is all our responsibility. We have to social distance. We have to stay at home. Um, and as a country, we need to ramp up testing rapidly. We're not going to be able to recover until we can uh, uh, until we can push back this virus. Um, you know, as you as you look forward, I, you know, I would highlight three key things to positioning ourselves for recovery. And, and the first is, is delivering the emergency relief that the government has announced quickly. Uh, as Kevin said, you know, this is not a, a typical business cycle. This is a natural disaster. And it's moving at natural disaster speed. It's not moving at, at uh, business cycle speed. And you can't restrict activity in large parts of the economy and stimulate it at the same time. You have to focus on on emergency relief. And I would actually give the government high marks for its, its really sweeping uh, emergency relief effort. But a, a key, the key thing right now is actually execution and delivery. This is a, a Herculean task. I mean, the public service needs to rapidly scale up existing programs and stand up whole new ones. We're lucky we have a very good public service, but this is an enormous challenge. Uh, the, I would also emphasize the private sector has a really important role to play, particularly the financial sector. Um, they need to be working with their customers. Uh, they need to be working with the government on how to deliver credit quickly. And the objective of all these things has to be to build a bridge to help us help individuals and businesses get to the other side of this so that we can then recover. The second thing I would stress is we need to start thinking about how we're going to get back to work now. And we need to be planning for that. You know, the health experts tell us it takes about six to eight, eight weeks to flatten the curve with social distancing, stay at home, testing. Um, so we're probably about two weeks into that. So, you know, four, hopefully four or five weeks from now, we've flattened the curve and governments start to lift some of the restrictions. What we know from other countries, though, is that it's not just going to be a jump back to normal. Uh, we're going to have to be cautious. There's probably going to be some re-emerging markets. Restrictions may come back on. They, uh, they may be local. They may be more, um, maybe more broad scale. But how we plan to get back to work uh, is going to be really important for our ability to ramp back up production without respreading the virus. So I would really highlight the, the need to, to reestablish confidence that we can go back to work. We can shop. Um, we can go to school. Um, you know, every company should be thinking about what's the back to work plan? How are they going to get back workers to get back to work safely? How are they going to serve their customers safely? How are they going to deal about disruptions in their supply chain? Uh, how are they going to respond to changes in, in consumer demand? And then from the government side, um, 
there's an urgent need. We're, we're really going to need to ramp up testing. Uh, we're going to have to have widely available, fairly rapid testing if we want to be able to get back to work safely. Um, Drive-through testing in South Korea has been very successful, for example. Um, we're we're going to need things like better social tracking. We're going to need things like telemedicine. Um, and governments and, and businesses are going to have to be very nimble. And then the last thing I would say in terms of the recovery is you know, most of the emergency relief uh, measures last about four months. So in four months, those are going to start rolling off if they don't get extended. And at that point, we're going to probably need to replace them with some more traditional stimulus. Uh, so we do need to be thinking now about what does that stimulus look like. And when you get to stimulus, uh, you want to think about the things with the biggest fiscal multiplier. And on top of that list would be infrastructure. Clearly, the government is thinking about this. On Friday, they appointed my new colleague at, uh, at the University of Toronto, Michael Sabia, to be the new chair of the, uh, the Canadian Infrastructure Bank. So they're, they're, they're clearly starting to think about this. How do we use that infrastructure to build the economy of the future? Uh, are there some big nation building projects? Do we want to accelerate the pivot to low carbon growth? Do we, do we want broadband, you know, uh, 5G for the whole country? You got to believe coming back to where Anne said, there's going to be some big investments in public health. So those would be three things I think about. Okay. Thank you. I'll just uh, jump into a couple of questions from the um, audience here. Um, are there uh, economic models or previous examples that we can look to in order to understand how the economy is likely to unfold? Um, the, our, our questioner asked about 9-11, um, taking, getting airlines back to capacity, uh, what kind of economic relief pro programs worked and didn't uh, work, and if there are, I guess, anything that we could uh, turn to from back then that would be useful right now. Um, feel free to jump in, any of you. Now, this probably, for the most part, understanding the shock is goes beyond you know the typical kind of models people use at finance departments or central banks. Um, this is um, a new every bit is I would say as complicated as the two thousand and eight financial crisis. Um, this you know this has um, it's a medical shock as Anne talked about. You know it's an economic shock. It's um, it's also I think deals with you know with confidence. And uncertainty in a very significant way. I think people that look at this probably see it in different phases. Starting like in this particular case, it started with the China shock, which disrupted supply chains very early on. Then, you know, second stage, we had a number of industries that were disrupted: you know, international travel, transportation. Now, I think like we, many of us, like right now, we're in probably this most acute kind of phase where. We're in that steep part of that epi curve, the infection curve, and things are being shut down. The containment measures are very strong. But then, but then it's like you know, Tiff alluded to. Now, you know, we start to think about what does recovery look like the fourth stage. So again, these stages are overlapping and they play out in a very global world. So I think, and we're still, you know, you know a year, maybe you know, potentially longer away from a vaccine. So we, we know we're going to be living to some degree with this for a period of time. You know, perhaps you know the economic effects are going to go on. So, yeah, I think in terms of the modeling, I think most people think that we're looking at something quite historic in terms of decline in output because of containment in the second quarter. Um, and once you get beyond that, again, how fast can we you know start lifting some of these containment measures? Can we do that in an internationally coordinated way? I think you know, and we'll probably have ideas as to how we can kind of work to do that you know across countries. But again, I think that's a global component. 
But yeah, it could take us, you know, many quarters, years to kind of even get back to the level of output where we were, you know, in the first quarter of, of this year. So again, this is a you know, significant journey, but out for the most part, outside the bounds of models. So just to pick up on that, and Anne McClellan, um, do you see an international uh, effort there? Like, is it even possible? We're all at different stages of the pandemic. Um, and I think there's quite a few differences among countries about how, how um, you know, what kind of social programs and financial supports have been used to, to tie people through. Is it possible to, to work together and take it, as, as Kevin referred, to, to actually have some kind of global stimulus that would work in, to amplify all of those things? Well, you would like to think so. And I think this goes to maybe some of the things Tiff alluded to earlier. Um, I mean, we've built a global system, you know, and, and obviously um, we have different agencies and organizations uh, that have been premised upon a very high degree of multilateralism. It's not perfect. Uh, and there might always be a rogue here or there, but you're not used to the United States of America. America potentially being the rogue. And the United States of America, whether it was the Marshall Plan after the Second World War, uh, whether it was dealing with SARS in a much more limited capacity, uh, they, they were the global leader. Um, and they, I wouldn't say they took charge, but they actually, I think, did. And, and everybody, I think, uh, drew, participated in the ways that they, they could, but with the United States as a practical leader and in some cases a moral leader. I'm not sure that we can count on that, but yeah, I think that if we're going to get out of this global pandemic, and the word global is really important here, um, we are going to have to count on our multilateral organizations and in the health space, the WHO among others. But um, I, I am, um, I guess what I would say is that I am hopeful but skeptical at the same time in that there seems to be so much self interest um, and so and, and a dis um, I don't know somehow things aren't calibrated the way they used to be and in part that's because of the role the US is or isn't playing in key areas and I think it's going to take some time for us all to figure out whether it's in the health space particularly or in terms of the broader economy and civil society whether it is possible to come together and and decide what is needed to move the world forward. So just uh, there are a couple of questions um, um, from the audience that are kind of relevant to that. Um, you know, in the, in the meantime, as we're dealing with this, um, this, uh, you know, unpredictable U.S. Uh, powerhouse south of the border there, um, is it, does it make sense for us to um, dramatically increase the national stockpile of, 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 of everything we need, uh, healthcare, material, food, um, you know, do we, you know, do we, how do we react to that? How should we as a, as a country, um, you know, of course we always want to think about the, the, the multinational aspect of it and hope that we can work together. But if mm -hmm. there's that reality south of the border, what's the immediate action on that front? Do you want to take that in, McClellan? I do believe in terms of, of stockpiling, uh, you need to work at, at two levels, I think, in our country. The national level, uh, where the government of Canada, I think, uh, will be looking going forward to 
uh, what is likely to be needed and uh, bring the full uh, financial resources and information resources of the government of Canada uh, to determine uh, what are reasonable stockpiles in relation to key things. For example, test kits or PPE, we're hear, uh, hearing a lot about. But keep in mind the provinces and are the closest, uh, they run the healthcare system, they are closest to the people in those systems. And therefore, in this country, you actually do need, I think, one, a high level of integration and cooperation, but the provinces stockpiling based on their needs, province by province, but the federal government providing an umbrella, if you like, safety net uh, in terms of, of key aspects of uh, procurement. And then on top of that, I think we just have to think about producing a lot more of these key supplies uh, here at home so that we're not dependent upon China or the United States because we see uh, supply chains being disrupted for different reasons, mind you, but you see those supply chains being disrupted. And I, I just think this is a big wake up call for a lot of people in the world because things that we thought we could depend on seem not to perhaps be there and therefore it is going to speak to the fact that the two key levels of government in a public health crisis uh, are actually going to have to work very closely together and keep their eye on what is needed you cannot buy 50 million masks and then let them expire right? That's just not smart public health planning. Or if they do expire, uh, because they're not needed, then you have to replace them, and you have to be backfilling. And that speaks to the attention that we all need to put to our public health care system. Thanks. Um, I just want to switch gears a little bit and combine, we've got a lot of questions. Um, and so I'm going to combine a few uh, and direct this at, at, at Tiff Macklem, um, because it's the world that you, the, you're you working in at the, at the, at the Rotman School. Um, is there a way, is this an opportunity, I guess, for, um, you know, we hear so much about our Canada's artificial intelligence capacity, um, and about, um, you know, the, the, the digital economy. Um, and, you know, here we are with, uh, there's a huge press uh, for more data, and there's a lot of healthcare data coming out into the public sphere, there could be more, I'll say, but anyway, there, there's a lot coming up. Is this an opportunity um, for us to combine um, our artificial intelligence uh, expertise, take all that data, and, and really push forward here and turn it into something that could be productive on, on a competitiveness scale, but also very much on a healthcare scale. Uh, it, it certainly is. Um, you know, when, when you think about what artificial intelligence does, it, it's basically a prediction machine. Uh, uh, and it, it's dramatically dropped the cost of prediction and has allowed us to process massive amounts of data. Uh, and you know, there are so many applications of health that are related to prediction. I mean, we're, we're, listen, we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic. This is all about, I mean, all we're looking is, 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 is you know, curves, prediction curves. Um, but when, when you, even individually, when you go to the doctor, the doctor tries to predict what's wrong with you. Um, and Canada actually, because uh, thanks to the work of Anne and others, we, we, we have a pretty strong public health care system uh, and in provinces, we have a single payer model. So the provinces have massive amounts of health data. Uh, this is, and, and the other great thing about Canada is that we're such a diverse society. Um, we can 
when we when we uh, use the data, it it has all different people from from all different ethnic backgrounds. Um, so the testing is quite representative globally. Um, so there is a real opportunity going forward for Canada to get this data more organized, to figure out privacy constrictions, to anonymize it, um, and to allow our AI researchers to really accelerate uh, medical, medical research using this data. Um, so thanks for that. Um, you know, do, do we have the data? Is it, do, do we need more public data? Is that what, is that what we need to make this happen? Um, or, you know, can, and can it move, can the companies move fast enough to actually be the, um, you know, solution finders right here and now when we need them so badly? Right. So there, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. So there are some very immediate needs. Uh, some of these are just, you know, physical needs, personal protection equipment, ventilators, uh, proper disinfectants, sanitizers. And, you know, we've got to deploy our manufacturing uh, capacity in this country. Uh, universities need to use their labs. Uh, we need, it's got to be an all hands on deck to get these critical supplies that we need in our healthcare system immediately. We're also going to need, um, you know, getting to the, where I was before, um, getting back to work in a way that minimizes the probability of respreading the virus, we're going to need personal protective equipment to do that. We're going to need uh, effective disinfectants. Um, we're going to need things like telemedicine um, if we want to be able to treat people quickly. We're going to need rapid testing. Um, those are the immediate, um, the immediate priorities. Uh, I know at places like Vector, Institute, um, they are currently working on all sorts of um, AI applications to try to help in these things. And then the other piece of it, though, is that we then need to rapidly deploy these things and scale them. And uh, actually, at Rotman, we're launching an uh, initiative today uh, through the Creative Destruction Lab to run a special summer program to help uh, scale some of these new AI inventions. Uh, to try to very immediately help out with the immediate crisis. Um, then, you know, after we get through this immediate crisis, uh, there's going to have to be a, a lot of reflection. Uh, you've got to believe that we're going to need to invest heavily in the resilience of our public health system. There are a lot of questions here um, ab also about um, income support and uh, uh, well, we keep it. I'm going to address this, this question to Kevin. Um, there, there are, you know, a lot of reference we hear, a lot of chatter these days about uh, a guaranteed basic income. Um, but I wonder, you know, is that is that what you know? Clearly, clearly, the federal and provincial governments are all being um, creative and aggressive with their with their with their social supports and their income supports. Is the is the basic income just kind of uh, is that how do you see that? Is that actually a practical um, outcome and a, and and something that we should hope for out of all of this, or is this just perhaps a, a a way for people to say, okay, we see the government actually really supporting people who are in need right now, and this is like let's take something more general from that and let's keep going with it. Where where do you stand on that? Well, I think the uh, um, like the kind of supports programs that we you know the government's provided, <clears throat> built on top of what you know some people would call these automatic stabilizers like employment insurance, they're you know they're being tested right now. 
So their ability to provide funds to people quickly is you know, going to be under the microscope. And um, like as Tiff said, like this is going to be a Herculean effort on behalf of the public service, key departments, Canada Revenue Agency, Service Canada, to make sure that that money is flowing. And then you know, some of the you know, government departments, business development banks, EDC, to make sure that liquidity, those loans are being provided. But I think absolutely coming out of it, you know, people are going to ask themselves, are these existing programs, are they enough? Do they provide us our ability to get cash to people? That, you know, that actually fall through the cracks. And I think like the government needed to work really quickly, like to find out like who are those <clears throat> part-timers and those self-employed people that don't get access to some of what, you know, these uh, current income support programs. So I would not be surprised at the end of this, Heather, that we find ourselves looking, you know, piloting more and more, you know, universal basic income programs in certain sectors of the economy and, you know, working with it to see if we can get it to work. So could it be part of the future? I would say yes. Just to follow up on that, Anne McClellan, um, you know, we've seen uh, economic projections for whatever they're worth um, that, that Alberta um, will take it, it, is already taking it on the chin in a big way, obviously, but that, that, that if it stands to fare the worst out of all the provinces in, in this. How should governments thread the needle on that in terms of, you know, income supports specifically for, for um, you know, sectors that have been dealt a, a double, triple blow? I'm talking about energy here, mm-hmm. while also dealing with, you know, our, the longer term goals of emissions reduction and so forth. I mean, how do we make that? It, it's, a, it's a huge question, I realize, and something that goes to the, goes to the source of, of things that we've been dealing with in Canada for a very long time. But is there, um, I guess, you know, if, if, you, were, if you were to have your, your druthers there and, 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 and design the, the solution for the future, what would it look like right now? Well, first of all, you have your general programs, right? The national programs that obviously help uh, workers. Let's focus on the oil and gas sector, as everybody does when they talk about Alberta for obvious reasons. You have general programs of general application that are going to assist unemployed workers. And gosh knows we had a lot of them before uh, the Saudis and the Russians decided to fight about the, uh, the price of oil and overproduce even more. And before COVID-19. So yeah, we have general programs that will help. But I think in terms of a specific sector-based initiative, uh, especially for the oil industry, and certainly it's my understanding that those discussions are going on between the provincial government here in Alberta and the uh, federal government, I think you, uh, you do have to think about what you want that industry to look like in the future. And I think virtually everybody now in government and in the industry itself realizes that it can't look the way it did 20 years ago. That in fact, this industry has to, and it, it actually had begun the transition to the carbon constrained world. And individual companies were making investments in clean technology and geothermal and, and a wide, wide range of technological applications, some driven by AI, TIFF, uh, in terms of transforming the, the industry. But they were at the beginning of that transition. And And of course, then they got body blows, uh, which I've already mentioned, that have have made it now it's survival. Now in the oil industry, it's liquidity, liquidity, 
liquidity, right? And which country, uh, which company should survive, which shouldn't, uh, a whole, as you said, a whole host of, of questions there. But I think now is the opportunity for the leaders in the sector themselves with the uh, two levels of government to say, what do we want this to look at, like on the other side? And that had already begun because of the carbon constrained world in which we were beginning to live. But I think that this current situation may accelerate that. And uh, uh, certainly I think the government of Canada would be looking to see that the support it provides not only sustains the best players in the sector coming out of this, but also is is helping those players get a much better sense of what this industry will look like 40 years from now. I'm actually just going to jump in here. There are so many amazing questions that I honestly think that if we were to answer them all, and we should honestly try to do that, we'd be here for another two, three hours. I'm going to ask just by a nod of heads, if our collective panelists can extend this by just five minutes, and we'll try to answer as many questions as we can or get in some big thoughts as we wrap up here. Heather, over to you. Sure. Just to pick up on, I mean, I guess uh, Anne McClellan left us with a fairly, uh, in the, if we could say, optim- it's hard to say optimistic in this. In this, in this no, I'm not sure I was being particularly <laughs> optimistic, but maybe realistic, maybe, maybe. I guess in terms of finding a way to make the most out of, out of this situation, is there something similarly productive that we could do along the lines of skills training and preparing the workforce of the future? I mean, we've talked so much about, uh, you know, in the months before this crisis, we talked so much about the, the future work and now we're not ready and we have to get ready and so on and on and on. Is this, can we do this at the same time? Can we actually use this as an opportunity to, to you know, redesign with all these people um, you know, off work, is there, is there an opportunity there? It's hard to add too much to Anne's answer. I thought she, she covered it extremely well. This is an emergency. The price of Western Canada Select, which is the price that a lot of Canadian producers, it's, you know, last week it was $4. You could buy a latte or you could buy a whole bottle, a barrel of oil. Uh, this week it's doubled to $8. Basically the refinery, if, if you know, landlocked oil is basically worthless. The, the refineries are shut. They're not taking it. It's worthless. Um, you know, clearly these prices aren't sustainable, um, but you have to believe, you know, I, I think the most likely scenario is we're going to see much weaker oil prices for, you know, a couple of years. We've seen a collapse of demand. The economy is going to restart. We are going to need, we need it, but there's been a huge buildup of inventories. I, I do think we need to learn from this. You know, as Anne said, we all know that 30 years from now, this industry needs to look a lot different than it is today. But what we're seeing is, you know, 30 years of adjustment happening in 30 days. And this is forcing a very brutal adjustment. You know, there is a rescue package coming. It's going to be important to do this intelligently to think about how do we um, both rescue it uh, and have a more orderly transition but make sure we have a transition. Partly that's about workers, but it's also about uh, technology. We need a plan that brings those two elements together. 
Thanks. Um, I think last question for Kevin. Here we are clearly with a national consensus that, you know, whatever it takes, right? Um, you know, let's uh, do as much as possible on the fiscal front and in through, um, you know, the Bank of Canada's balance sheet. Um, and, you know, this is almost is beyond anybody's wildest imaginations. Can we afford all this plus a, a stimulus package um, along the lines of, of what Anne McClellan and Tiff Macklin have been talking about, you know, that will position us better? Can we, can we afford to do all of these things at once? Well, I think the short answer would be yes. Uh, the I think the federal government is in a, a good, you know, is in a good fiscal can shape. It's fiscally sustainable. So I think people are talking about deficits going from something like one percentage of GDP to potentially as high as eight to ten percentage points of GDP. I actually was at the Department of Finance through the 80s, and we actually had deficits in the five percent range quite often, and we even hit eight percent. So this is not really unprecedented. Uh, I think, again, the feds need to step up. I would say there are provinces in this country that um, we're going to need to kind of support as well in different ways. Like Anne talked about Alberta. I think uh, we've heard from premiers in Manitoba and Newfoundland, and they're going to have some serious difficulty, um, you know, meeting basic needs. Um, so I think, you know, again, you know, Tiff talked about a need for infrastructure programs and talked about the need to kind of look at, you know, disease uh, prevention and control. Um, you raised the issue of income support, skills and training programs. I think looking at some of our fiscal stabilization programs and the kind of adjustment packages we're going to need for provinces uh, is going to be, uh, we need to do that as well as we kind of work our way through the summer and into the fall. Thank you for extending by five minutes, everyone. Thank you for joining us, everyone who joined the stream. Uh, I was watching our numbers. We actually held our audience throughout the entire duration of this chat. In terms of questions, Kevin, you'll be happy. I have a series of entire research projects based on some of the questions that we have been sent here by our attendees. And uh, I suspect actually that you will be seeing the Recovery Project curate some more live stream discussions based on some of these questions in the future. If you're not on the Recovery Project's mailing list, please get on our mailing list because we are going to be uh, doing a lot more of this kind of uh, activity. I will just simply end by saying thank you to our, our uh, viewers and also thank you to our panelists, uh, Kevin and Heather here in the Ottawa area, Tiff in Toronto and Anne in Edmonton. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your uh, insights with us and uh, watch this space. We'll be doing a lot more of it soon. It's great to see you all. <laughs> Bye. Bye everyone. <laughs>